The reading this morning is taken from Jonah uh, chapter 2. The book of Jonah chapter 2, Jonah's prayer. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me, and your waves, all your waves and breakers, swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down, the earth beneath me barred me from forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Very nice to see you. And I'd like us to join together in prayer that God would speak to us through this second chapter of the book of Jonah. Would you join me in praying? Father God, we thank you for the scriptures. And as we read more about Jonah, we pray that you would open our hearts to you, that you'd find us teachable and ready to say, Yes to you, Lord. And I pray for the help of your Holy Spirit as I speak, that I might speak faithfully of you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I've chosen to call this talk Seeing Clearly from a Dark Place. Seeing Clearly from a Dark Place. And I'm just going to give a quick recap of where we got to in Jonah's life so that we start on the same page, as it were. Last week, we discovered that at the beginning of the book of Jonah, Jonah is running as fast as he can in the very opposite direction to the one that God has asked him to go in. And the ship that he was in hits turbulence, and he gets woken up from his slumbers below decks, and he's forced to a place where he has to come clean, that really he's a Hebrew, he worships the living God, and it's his fault that the ship is in such trouble. And so we read in verse 12, chapter 1, he says, Pick me up, throw me into the sea. I know it's my fault this great storm has come upon you. And they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And I'm tempted to say, that's a bit over the top, isn't it? And of course, ah, oh, groan. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. But if you put yourself into Jonah's shoes just at that point, 
I, I think it's just good to remember this is a time of high risk for him. Just at that second where he, he is thrown overboard, he is in as precarious a situation as, say, David is running towards Goliath, or as, say, Daniel is going into the den of lions. I really don't think he was singing to himself, you are my peace in the troubled sea. No, no, I think he was singing, ah! What happens next? It's, it's a dangerous time. And he's exercising the same level of trust as Jesus is when he heads towards Jerusalem. He's really thrown on the mercy of God. And I want us to see this morning that he discovers three standout things, and I think they can be very, very encouraging for us and challenging, actually. And the first one is this. God reveals to Jonah in this very dark place that he can actually get to see things that he's missed when he was in a better place. This is, I think, pretty largely a mess of Jonah's own making. And it's, he couldn't have been proud of that situation that day when he was chucked overboard. But the thing he realizes is God is much closer than he thought. And I just want to start with this reassuring point because I assure you challenges coming later, but let's start with reassurance. When and if your life descends into a mess, when you can't make head or tail of what's going on all around you, when things are happening which you really now regret, even if you caused them to happen, because Jonah certainly caused this to happen, even then, God is closer than you think. He is literally one prayer away from you. And I say that with certainty because the only place that God isn't, the only place where there is no trace of his light, no evidence of his love, no benefit of his character, is hell. And that you won't know or experience till after you die. So, so, so long as you have life and breath, he is one prayer away. And what's happening in this chapter it, it, to Jonah is very rarely spoken about today, but it's a key part of what it means to walk with Jesus in discipleship. It's a very old-fashioned process, a very old-fashioned word. Really, the word is chastening. What does chastening mean? Chastening is what you might call fatherly correction or discipline. Actually, I don't know why it has to be fatherly. It could be motherly. But it's correction and it's discipline. And usually, when you're chastened, it involves discomfort and pain. It always involves character development. And the New Testament tells us it's actually a hallmark of being a Christian. It actually proves you really are a Christian. It's one of the things that comes with the rations of following Christ. If you're ever tempted to ask, why is God putting me through this? Or rather, why does this 
God allowing this to happen? One of the answers might be that God allows it because there's no other way that he can shape you into becoming more like him. Of course, it is an open question whether God is causing this or Jonah has created it, but we won't dwell on that. And let's notice the kindness of God. He provides for Jonah even when Jonah has turned his back on him. That's what verse 17 tells us. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. The generosity of God plays out even and perhaps especially when we do rebel. Think of Adam and Eve who are given skins and provisions even as they're kicked out of the garden. Think more though of the provision for us on the hill called Golgotha at a place called Calvary where God provides a saviour for us when precisely we knew we were lost. And now God provided a fish for Jonah. And as he sinks to the bottom, every part of his life that might have been pretense is stripped away. This is a gut-wrenching prayer, is it not? This is, is a prayer where deep calls to deep. This is a prayer with utmost sincerity because it's just a cry for help. In my distress, verse 1, I cried for help. In the depths of the grave, I called for help. And that's an utterly sensible thing to do when you're in trouble. I wonder how many prayers has God heard from the examination halls? How many prayers does God hear from hospitals? How many prayers has God heard from the battlefield? And the answer is, not enough. It's amazing to me as I think about it, but it is a truth that there is no pride in God at all. He will hear and receive our prayers. I, I once um, remember, well, really wanting to pray and not knowing how to go about it. I, I was at school, um, I must have been about 16 years old, and I was just watching a game of football happening, which um, was a friendly match, or so-called friendly match, between the masters of the school and the pupils of the school. And the headmaster decided, I suppose, as a sort of um, gesture of goodwill, that, that he would play in this match for about three or four minutes. And he went onto the pitch and he was, started playing and suddenly he collapsed and um, all, all the players suddenly they saw what was going on they formed a circle around him and the longer he stayed lying in the mud the more serious we thought it all was and then an ambulance came out and then he got cut off in an ambulance and I remember going back to my room thinking I really want to pray and thinking I just don't know how I don't know how to begin how do you, how do you even frame a prayer and it didn't have a happy ending because he died. But I was shaken that I didn't know what to say or who to say it to. And I think a bit like that, I remember having a conversation with um, a man. It was actually in a church. We were having a, a guest dinner and people were sat around tables and I was sitting next to a very nice man and I asked him what he did and he told me he was a, a pilot, a, a, a commercial airline pilot. And, you know, I asked him the obvious questions, do you enjoy your job? And he said, sort of mostly. 
And he started to tell me, and he said, I, I didn't particularly enjoy it when I was hijacked. And I said, well, tell me about that. And he, he described it, and it was extremely dangerous and traumatic. He, he um, was uh, bound to the seat, and it was very hot. There was no air conditioning or anything, and the terrorists were, had commandeered the plane. And obviously, it was extremely dangerous. Two people were killed in that, during that hijacking. Obviously, he survived. And I asked him, did, did you pray? And he said, no. And he, he said, um, I didn't think it'd be right to pray. I hadn't prayed when life was going well, so I wasn't going to start praying then. Didn't seem right. And I, I think I actually did say to him, well, you're wrong about that. Uh, it, it's never a bad time to pray. There are better times to pray, but it's never a bad time to pray. And we're told you know, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What I'm saying is, should anyone be listening to this and you know that you screwed up in life and you know that it's just not going how you want it to go, and even if it's entirely your fault, which I doubt, you still can turn and ask God for help. I want that to be a takeaway from this talk. In my distress, I turned to the Lord and he heard my prayer, says Jonah. That's important. Turn to the Lord for help. And what I see, and we're going to focus on now two completely different points, one at greater length than the other. He comes to see one amazing, amazing truth, and it's in verse 8. And I think this is one of the most punchy lines in the whole of Scripture. And I'm going to read it to you from the Revised Standard Version because I think it, it, it puts it better, actually. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. This is one of the most shocking lines I know in the whole of Scripture. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. And he only gets to see this, I think, from his dire straits and initially, you might read that phrase, worthless idols, and you might think to yourself, I don't have any idols. You know, we're more sophisticated than that. You know, you, you can walk around my home, Rupert, and there's certainly not a totem pole in the hall. No, we don't do idols. But we have to stop and think a bit more, actually, because an idol is really anything that gets in the way of you following God closely. It's anything that you put in higher importance than living God's plan for your life. And it begs the question, which is a big question, is the way I'm living life aligned to the plan that God has for my life? Because if it's not aligned, if it's every danger you're going to miss out, I'm going to miss out, on seeing the grace that we could have seen. And what's more shocking still is, unless you and I pursue this line remorselessly and very intentionally, you definitely will not be following God's will. Because the average template is just to drift away from God. It's to please yourself, to go in your own direction. All of us know that. It's this massive pull 
of what scripture calls the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it takes unbelievable intentionality to pursue the narrow road that God has for us. And yet, and yet, I don't think it's rocket science. You know, it has been said, no one says on their deathbed, at least I don't think they do, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. No one really, I think, says, get me my stamp collection, or I want to be reminded of my best round of golf. You know, these kind of things, they're going to seem very insignificant when everything else is stripped away. Much more like Queen Elizabeth I, who said, all my possessions for a moment of time. And the thing is, the road we take, the road we travel, it's made up of a thousand small decisions. That's the point. It's so subtle. It's a thousand small decisions which, which will either pursue God's grace or lead us away from it. As I scratched my head over this, I thought, so what are the common things, just the common things that most obviously seduce us away from pursuing God's track? And I don't think that they're um, particularly camouflaged. They're very, very common. And Jesus actually tells us what they are, so it's quite easy for me to tell you. And to make it easy, though this bit is a little bit forced, they do begin with P. Possessions. Possessions. Uh, A lot of people, a lot of people fall for this. We just want more. More riches. And it's so easy to be possessed by possessions. And it's much more subtle than you and I think. This, you can be captured and captivated by possessions when you have very little, just as much as when you have very much. It's not like the danger just only starts when you've got an income of over this. It's an attitude that really springs with possessions. And I'm not judging anyone over this. This is just what Jesus tells us can happen. But it's salutary to think about it, because sometimes you might ask someone, why did you take that job? And they'll say, well, because of the potential riches that it put in my hand. But Jesus says, a person's life doesn't consist in the abundance of their possessions. And if we have all the possessions in the world, is it worth it if you forfeit the grace that could have been yours? Or people wanting to impress people or please people and influence people, whether it's family or friends or neighbors. And again, Jesus just warns us. He just says about some people, they love the praise of men rather than the praise of God. Now, I I want to just make it clear, this is not sort of Rupert being chippy about different things. This is Jesus saying, watch out because these can skewer your judgment. They can lead you off track. And and if they become too influential in your life, you you won't see the grace that could have been yours. A third one, pastimes, that I thought was rather forced as a heading, but really is where you invest your time, whether it's photography or the golf club or sport or sailing. If it gets in the way of following God, what Jesus calls the desire for other things, we're not going to see God's grace, as we could have done, if you cling to them. And lastly, problems. 
It's not that most of us um, sort of want problems in our life, but it's the worry that comes with the problems. When that gets a grip of us, it, it, we cling to it, and it, it has this extraordinary corrosive effect on the grace that could have been ours. Now, I, I do want to make it clear, there's nothing wrong with possessions, there's nothing wrong with people, there's nothing wrong with having pastimes. You know, all of us, all of us need these things in our life. They, they bring joy in our life. But when they take the place of pursuing God, it is problematic. I was trying to think, what, what is the definition of idolatry? How could we sum it up? And I guess it, it, it's, you could, I, this is trying to look at the word idolatry and ask the question, who runs your life? And if the answer is, I do, I'm at the center of it, it's I do lottery. (laughs) It's making everything revolve around pleasing me. Whereas a follower of Christ, we say, don't we? Like Paul, I make it my aim to please him. That's what Paul said. We make it our aim to please him. He rules our life very deliberately. That's what Jesus said, didn't he? He said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all the rest will be added to you. He didn't say the other stuff's not important, but he said, seek first the kingdom of God. So, so it, it challenges me to think, is that what I'm really doing? Is that what I'm really doing? And it, it's a decision that you make again and again and again and again. And it has to be said, really, living this way is not the easiest way to live. It, and it's not even the way you're encouraged to live. We're encouraged to live saying something like this, I get by on my own strengths, I get by, I live off my wits, I live off my talents. And, and yet God says, yeah, I want your gifts, I want your talents, I applaud it, all of that, but I want it surrendered to me to see what I can do when I'm entrusted with it. And as you go down this road, here's the thing, here's the challenge. As you go down this road of obedience, you have no idea yet of the grace of God you're going to see. Now, a word of clarification. I'm not talking about saving grace. So I'm not talking about uh, you don't forfeit your salvation if you you live the most selfish life in the world after uh, you've become a Christian. Jesus has died on the cross, and if you accepted that, you have been saved. But there is an outpouring of God's grace that comes throughout our lives when we're obedient to him. You start to see the fruit of his kingdom, both in your character and in your life and in what's going on around you, and you, you have the joy of seeing the commission, the great commission, fulfilled. Or not, depending on whether you yield to God's plan. Let me give you a few examples uh, of what I'm talking about. So I want to talk to you about someone I'm calling Lucy. That's not her real name. Um, She's a friend. And when I first met her, she was a nurse. Uh, She was a fully qualified nurse. She was a ward sister. Uh, In 1985, she left her nursing career to to work at a a church in central London as uh, the first of her lay members of staff and she pioneered what became known as the Earl's Court Project. 
and she was caring for people living with issues such as addiction and drugs and alcohol and HIV and homelessness and prostitution. In, in 1991, she joined the chaplaincy staff of Holloway Prison, and in 1985, she pioneered Alpha in prisons. And today, I think over 80% of prisons in the UK um, run Alpha. And she introduced Alpha to over 50% of them. Now, in truth, many of the things that Lucy's contemporaries have and can talk about, she doesn't have, and she can't talk about. And I wouldn't think that she's lived an easy life or a comfortable life uh, compared to what she could have done. But she can talk to you and me about the grace of God and the power of God and the love of God, and she knows him inside out and back to front, <laughs> forwards and backwards and sideways, and could sit and talk to us for hours about what God has done in her life, through her life, and in other people. It's a treasure trove. But had she not actually been obedient to God's plan for her life, she would never have been able to talk about the grace. She would have forfeited the grace that could have been hers. Or I think of um, my friends Brad and Lisa, and that's their real names. And um, I first met them in the back of St. Michael's. I joined their small group. Brad was a banker. And I may have told you this story before, but it so perfectly illustrates what I'm trying to say that I'm telling it again. That um, <clears throat> when in the year 2000, he sat at my kitchen table in Cambridge and told Liz and I about a venture that he'd just begun, just begun. And he told us that in his little church uh, in Oklahoma, where he lived then, that a congregation of just 12 people, that an Indian young man called James had come and joined them and told them about the work that his father was doing in India, and they decided they would have a gift day to support James's father. And Brad sat talking to us. He's a perfectly normal guy, and he just sat talking to us, and he said, you know, we had this gift day, and I was sitting in the car park praying with Lisa, my wife, and we were praying, what should we give? And to our horror... Uh, rather a large sum came into our head. And he said, maybe it's because I deal in finance the whole time. I knew this was the bulk of our pension provision. And he said, we gave it. And as he told us this, he started to physically shake. And tears came down his face. And he said, I am so, so grateful to God that we were obedient that day. He said, I hate to think what we would have missed had we not been obedient that day. And he went on to tell us about what God was doing in India. Well, I rang Brad up just two days ago, sermon prep, and, and he, he's now in Florida, retired. And I said, Brad, just give me up-to-date stats. You know, what, what's actually been accomplished through this project? And uh, he said, um, now, 21 years later, they've planted, wait for it, 23,000 churches. 23,000 churches. And he said, some of them are small, you know, about congregation, about 15, but some of them are very big. So I said, well, 
help us quantify this, you know. He said, well, at least over a million adults have been impacted and at least over a million children have been impacted. And, and the thing is, this was, the point I'm making is, his obedience means that he didn't forfeit the grace that could have been his. Now, there's one big problem with these two illustrations. I, I was reflecting on this in between the services. That in, in picking something sort of mega, it gives the impression that every decision has to be mega. But actually, obedience starts in small steps. It, it, it can be just the obedience of talking to a friend of yours who's in trouble. Just deciding to pick up the phone this afternoon because you have a sort of gentle nudge from the Holy Spirit that so-and-so's in trouble, and even though I really don't know what to say, I feel I ought to express to them that I care about them. It, it can be as simple as that, or it can be you're in the office or you're in the hospital where you work or you're in the school where you work, and you have just that nanosecond of a chance to let it be known that you are a Christian. I don't know what it is. It's in a conversation. Someone might be slagging off Christianity, and you have just a fraction of a second to say, actually, do you know what? I, I actually want to stand defend Christianity or whatever it is. You know, these decisions to, to bear out in our lives the calling that God has put on our lives, they very often are be small things rather than huge things. But we need to be alert because if, if we don't line up our lives with what God has for us, you will forfeit the grace that could have been yours. I thought just to illustrate that I'm not getting at everyone else, I give you an illustration that vicars are prone to lose the plot as well. That um, There's quite an interesting little graph, a correlation between the age of vicars and the churches that grow. And the unintended, well, the unforeseen um, results of this graph, it sort of spiked in two places. It spiked in the first five years of when people were ordained, and it spiked in the last five years of when people were ordained before the retirement. So the moral of this story, you know, pick someone who's either just out of college or five years within the finishing line. And do you want to know why that is? It's because when they start, fresh-faced and, and you know, bushy-tailed, unblunted with enthusiasm, that's how they start when they leave theological college. Hooray. And similarly, when they get within sight of the finishing post, they think to hell with all the stuff that comes from central office and pleasing this and pleasing that. Why don't I just do what God's asked me to do? And let's see what happens then. Let's just preach the gospel, ask the Holy Spirit to come and throw caution to the wind and see what the Lord can do. And I don't know why it takes until the last five years before they do that. Maybe they think they're not going to go up the greasy pole anymore anyway, so let's give it a go. And, and then God does something and delivers so I just give that little illustration to say none of us, none of us are free from the temptation of clinging on to idols. All of us need the encouragement. And the same is true for us as St. Michael's, as a church. We, we just shouldn't be afraid to say, Lord, we're, we're pitching our lot in with you and we're determined to ruthlessly pursue whatever path it is that you take us down because we don't want to forfeit the grace that could have been ours. Well, I've made that point now, and it's time to move on to the last one. And that's in verse 9. I love it that as he concludes his prayer, 
he gets to the central point. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. It's not a pleasant thing to be stripped down, so stripped down that you have absolutely nothing. But it does happen in Scripture quite a lot. And you find those characters who are absolutely paired to the bone end up saying salvation comes from the Lord. And that's a place that God can build on. And then with a few verses from Jeremiah. Let not the wise boast of their strength or the wisdom. So I start again. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. I'm going to lead us in a prayer and then we're going to sing together a song which Dan's going to lead us in. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the scriptures. Thank you that we can learn and gain wisdom from other people's experience. And we want to learn from Jonah's experience. Thank you that today, if we cry out to you, you'll hear our voice. And we pray for those in trouble today, those who have lost the plot, lost the sense of your presence, who feel they sit in deep darkness. And we pray, Lord, that they would reach out to you and find you, you who are light and in whom there's no darkness at all. And thank you, Jesus, that you were so upfront that to walk in your ways is to pursue a very narrow path. Lord, we, we seriously don't want to forfeit the grace that could have been ours. We, we want to ask you, Lord, to graciously show us what we need to let go of and to allow us to cling to you Help us to make good choices. Holy Spirit, prompt us. Prompt us through friends, through your scriptures, any way you like, but lead us in your path, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.